On page 628 in the Pew Bibles, a section of Psalm 19 that we'll read together for our boys and girls to share with us and be with us in that. You, you may be seated. It might be a little more comfortable to find it and be seated, and, and uh, then I'll ask you to stand again, and we'll read. You know how I am. You just can't, you know, just, you just can't cure me. I'm sorry. So Psalm 19, and, and if you'd find it now, stand back up. Isn't that great? That wasn't in the program, was it? All right. Okay. So we're going to stand together and read um, the, the 19th Psalm. Again, now this is 14 verses. We know it's a little long, but this is part of our task, a part of our goal now. In going for the gold this year, we're, we're going to be going for the gold in five ways. And today in this, this second phase, we're looking at the, the, the priceless gold of God's Word in our lives. And, and this psalm is such a majestic manus, uh, uh, masterpiece as well as being so spiritually enriching. And one of those psalms that does well to read again and again and again, read it aloud, read it quietly, take it into your daily life in a new way. Let's read together verse, chapter 19, verse 1 to 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Can all the believers shout hallelujah? hallelujah. And uh, disciple land and explorers now can go. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> the exploration of the word of God and the discovery of its treasures is the is the core of this great psalm, as you see. And today we'll, we'll, we'll zero in a bit on verses 7 to 14, but the connection is really vital between what we saw last week in looking at uh, the starry heavens, at looking at the cosmos, looking at uh, the way that God chooses to disclose who he is. The awesome reality behind the 19th Psalm is that the eternal, infinitely wise, holy God 
must disclose himself or we could never know him. And if we respect the way and regard, esteem, the way that he has chosen to make himself known, we will not only benefit immensely internally, but it will equip us in another goal that's a part of this church's goal, equipping the saints for works of ministry, equipping believers to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. In the first six verses of this psalm, then, we, we have this, we have this um, amazing explanation, a poetic portrayal of the cosmic heavens. David focused on the heavens above him, especially the circuit of the sun, but there are many worlds in God's creation. They include the earth beneath our feet, the plant and animal worlds on earth, in the skies, and in the waters, the human world, the world of rocks and crystals, worlds visible to the human eye, and worlds so small that we need special equipment to even see them. A world-famous biologist, Edward, Edward O. Wilson, claimed that there may be as many as 1.6 million species of fungi in the world today, 10,000 species of ants, 300,000 species of flowering plants, between 4,000 and 5,000 species of mammals, and approximately 10,000 species of birds. But, but these large numbers of these smaller, wondrous creations pale in comparison to the start of this psalm where David's focus is on the starry heavens. And when you begin to calculate it, David knew nothing of modern scientific data, and yet when he pondered the heavens, he was overwhelmed by the glory of God. Now, when we pray this prayer together and think about the words of 14, I want to ask you to think about it like this that this concluding verse of the psalm gives us a, a fresh, an application that is timeless and powerful and we can carry with us and clearly out of context, even it's a wonderful prayer. It, could be, it can be embroidered, it can be painted, it can be, it's just a wonderful take-home verse no matter where you are. And it's one of those cases in Scripture where the context certainly matters, but, but it's wondrous even out of context because it's just a standalone wonderful prayer. But part of our goal in this, uh, this brief series for Psalm 19 is to kind of see the context of why this psalm culminates in this very moving prayer. So let's pray it again. Let's say it again. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now there's elements of that prayer that that both echo and expand and really intensify what, what David uh, portrays both in the 18th chapter, interestingly, of some key foreshadowings in his reference to my God as my rock and the deliverance of Almighty God, and then in the 19th chapter, this, this reality of the Redeemer who revealed himself. What a wonderful thing. Um, on a very human level, on a very basic human level, we love it when somebody that we, we want to know 
Um, we're not quite sure how to get to know this person. We, we, we want to know, uh, will they uh, share themselves with us? Will they disclose themselves? How many of you have had a surprise, a very pleasant surprise, when you met somebody you, you didn't know and spent some time with them, and all of a sudden, maybe you even misjudged them. You kind of didn't think that much about them, and also you spend time with them, and they're disclosing something about themselves, and you go, wow, what a fascinating life. How many of you have had that? I mean, just on a very basic human level, that's true. Um, how much more is it true for the almighty, eternal, infinitely wise, and infinitely personal God who chose to create a universe in which the crown zenith of his creation, human beings, man and woman, male and female, would have a place in a massive, spacious universe beyond what any human words can describe. So the connection between verses 1 to 6 and verse 7 through 11 is something not to be missed. And of course, we, you know, we saw that we break this psalm down in these three ways. First, that the first six verses are a stellar invitation from God. This, the, the, the 7 through 11 section is, gives us six benefits of reading God's Word, and then I call that, to, that prayer that we just prayed, I call it the, the gold miner's prayer, uh, because if we grasp what we're about to see in 7 through 11, we realize that another fascinating aspect of the character of God is the relational aspect that we as Christians tend to take for granted because we grew up, most of us all grew up, hearing and praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we, we are all accustomed, and may I say this, I think respectfully, too accustomed, to just presuming on this Father, oh, Father, 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 Father God, Father God, Father God. It, it's, it's, it's wonderful, it's true, but we might be in danger, don't you think we might be in danger of, of sometimes losing sight of the magnitude of that awesome privilege that you and I have to wake up every morning and say, Father, Father, the creator of these massive, incredible, expansive, indescribably complex and orderly universe features that are a part of the very magnificent creative handiwork of God. So the, the connection here is interesting. The Psalms uh, the, the word for psalm in, in the Hebrew is the, uh, the word te tehillim, and the, the book of psalms is the sefar tehillim, the book of praises. So the accent in all the psalms, all 150 psalms, even those that, that go with into some, some very dark themes, those that go, chapter 88, for example, is one, has no bright spot in it. It's one psalm, 88 is just all sad, hurtful, going down, feeling low, and and, and, and it's another gift is God gives us a psalm like 88. Very few people's favorite psalm is 88, by the way. Uh, but it, he gives it the, to us because, for the very reason that we see in verse 14, that the meditation of our heart is enriched by realizing that God sees where you are long before you've ever been there. And the connection between verses 1 to 6 with the um, description of the starry heavens and verses 7 to 11 with the description of the Word of God is another aspect of the shining forth 
of the truth of the Psalms. The Psalms are to shine forth the praises of God, but the shining comes by oftentimes, in a sense, taking us deeper. Now, one way to think of it is like this. The, the very structure of the Psalms themselves gives us a kind of a clue. And without just going into detail, just very briefly, the, 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 there are poetic elements in, these, in this psalm and many others that, that are hints at the, at the way that God is getting our attention. James Johnston puts it this way, in a wonderful commentary on the psalms, when he explains it like this, the psalms engage our hearts and minds, they wake up our emotions to respond to God. It's exactly what verse 14 is, is designed for. It's to wake up our emotions to respond to God. Now, why would we need that? Let me interrupt the quote for a moment. Why would we need that? Obviously, I think we can all be very, if we're candid, we know our emotions get all discombobulated sometimes, don't they? Our emotions get all, are all over the map at times. How many of you have found at times your emotions are not doing what you wish they would do for you, right? And there is a, there is a dullness that can creep in. And, and, and of course, Part of that dullness is that we lose sight of the magnificent shining forth of who our Heavenly Father is. And it, in the Psalms, as Johnston says, no other book so powerful, no other book so powerfully shapes our minds and our hearts. And poetry is one of the ways it does it. And I always think when I start to See the word poetry, I always think, oh, that's going to be a that can be a dull in a sermon. People don't, you know, people don't think poetry really matters much these days. It's just, there's a tendency we have, even if we like poetry, there's a tendency a lot of people have to kind of relegate poetry just to nice little sappy sentimental verse. And and that doesn't nearly do justice to Hebrew poetry. One of the interesting things about Hebrew poetry, as opposed to the Western style of poetry we have, is that there are there are various ways that a message is conveyed through the Hebrew language that are somewhat subtle and almost like they sneak up on you and open your eyes to something that you haven't seen. One of those is parallel phrases, and we're going to see that in just a moment with a little handout sheet I'm going to ask Eric to pass around. You go ahead and start passing that around. And the parallel phrases. And, and the, another one is what I think of as numeric rhythms. And Psalm 19 is one of the classic examples of numeric rhythm. Now, what I mean by numeric rhythm, very simply, is that, is that numbers are not some kind of talisman or some kind of, um, some kind of a, um, esoteric, um, hidden meaning type thing. Sometimes people get very much into sort of trying to read and discern uh, very obscure messages in numbers. Actually, there is a very honored and revered and, and proven tradition of, of studying the Hebrew scriptures in terms of how God inspired human writers to use certain numbers to convey and communicate a broad theme. Now, there are many. Uh, 40 is a number of testing. We know Jesus for, fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the in the wilderness, and Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights, so that's 140. Now, seven, of course, probably the best known, and three. What's interesting here is, in this text, verses 1 to 6, there are three mentions of the heavens, the heavens. 
heavens, the heavens, the heavens. There's a trio of that emphasis of those first six verses. In the, in the uh, 12th to the, uh, in the 11th to the 13th verse, there are three kinds of sins. There, there are errors, and then there are faults, and then there's presumptive sin, willful sin, all under a broad category of transgressing the law of God. So threes, trios, come triads, if you will, come in many parts of the scripture, and they, they, they hint, they signal something. They signal an orderliness. They, they signal a, something referring us back to the origin of God who created us. Not, not some spooky, weird thing, just a, just a reminder in the poetic expression. And then, of course, seven is of classic. We all know of seven as the, because it occurs so many times, the sevenfold spirit of God in the first chapters of Revelation. Um, all the many, many different ways that the number seven is used. And what is striking here is that the use of these numbers or the, in, the imprint of these numbers in Psalm 19 gives us a wonderful hint as to the context of that prayer we prayed in verse 14. The first six verses refer to that creative splendor that we talked about. Seven through 11 refer to the word of God. And the, the, the page you have is, is a reference I want to give you, even though it comes from Psalm 119. I'm going to share something with you about these words in a minute because it parallels 19. And, and when you look at this, you see that the first six verses dealing with the cosmos refers to God in the most generic and understood universally, even in the days of David, reference to the Creator, and that is the name El, E-L, our Creator. But when you get to verses 7 to 11, the emphasis connects to the closing phrase of verse 6, that nothing in the natural order is hidden from the warmth of the sunrise. That there is nothing anywhere on the planet that is not affected and through photosynthesis, certainly all plant life, all, all life on earth is under the warmth of the sun. And that categoric statement then is not just a statement about the the physical world, it is a link into verses 7 through 13, how the, how the sins of our heart, the impurities of our heart, the struggles of inside of us, and our total personality. Like the natural world, nothing is hidden from the warmth of God's word. And the shifting emphasis from God disclosing his observable power in creation such that any human on the planet can know there must be a God, the L, there must be a God. There must be a designer behind this. And it pivots quickly in 7 to 11 to seven references to Yahweh. That is, the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh, is perfect, converting the soul. So what we have is a kind of a surgical precision of God's word flowing into the human heart so that the infinitely immeasurable cosmos is designed by God, yes, but the psalm then moves into that disclosure of Almighty God that was so 
vital and priceless to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was in the backside of the wilderness caring for livestock and he saw a bush burning in the desert. Spontaneous combustion of that kind of a brush is not unheard of due to the degree of heat in that, in that environment. And yet, typically, a spontaneous combustion bu- bush would burn up and, and, and end up being a crisp. But Moses sees this burning bush, and it continues to burn. And the, it's like the fire is intensifying when you would expect the natural material of the bush to be a crispy critter. And Moses then is moved as he goes to see this thing. And then God, El Shaddai, Elohim, speaks to him out of the bush and calls Moses and has Moses take his sandals off his shoes because he's standing on off of his feet because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses is then saying, Lord, after the conversation, who shall I say has sent, you, has sent me? What an, awesome, what an awesome encounter. Something Moses didn't feel any qualification for at all. Felt absolutely obliterated by the, the pressure of that moment. But it was Almighty God, Yahweh. It was him revealing that Yahweh name uh, that showed the covenant-keeping nature of God. So when you look at this little handout here, the point of this is that when you go to verses 7 to 11, what you have is six different words for the Word of God. Now, it's the same in chapter 119. That's why this, this sheet is helpful. Um, but the difference is that the two recurrences on this sheet of Word, the second one and the last one, um, are not in the 19th Psalm. So what we have in verse 7 to 11 are the, all the other synonyms for Scripture. Now, they are synonymous. There is some, uh, certainly there are some, some characteristic, uh, there's a characteristic emphasis of each one, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But what I'd like to ask you to think about is this, that if you take out those two uh, uses of the word in chapter 119, and then just think about these other six, the law, say them with me outside of the others. Law, judgment, testimony, commandment, statutes, precept. Now these, though overlapping certainly, um, might be compared to kind of a, a kind of a composite vision of, of, the, of the way that God breathes Scripture comes to our lives not only to reveal the nature of Yahweh, the true and living God, and to draw us to Him, but also to bring to our lives the very communication that we each need to receive faith. Remember the great scripture, Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing, say it with me, and hearing by the word of God. Well, what is striking and surprising in a way um, is that the New Testament writers quote from Psalms more than any other single book of the of the entire canon of the Old Testament. I count about 126 specific quotes in the New Testament 
of psalms, of various psalms, and that doesn't count many of the allusions to various themes in the psalms. It is a massive library of God giving in poetic terms a, an insight into his world. But as, as I mentioned earlier, one reason that the word poetry doesn't always do justice to this is that for us in our Western world, uh, taking a poem in English and translating it into another language basically loses everything. Try to take roses are red, violets are blue, da-da-da-da, you know, that's how much I love you, whatever it is. And you try to take your roses are red, violets are blue uh, little couplet and translate it into Spanish. Some of you that know Spanish or German or French, it, it loses everything. The parallelisms, the parallel, parallel phrases that we'll see in this section are, are, are aimed at bringing alive to the heart the, the cascading impact of God's revealed word to us. And of all of these quotes in the New Testament, it is striking that Romans 10, where we hear faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that the proof of that in the text refers back to Psalm 19, 5 and 6, where Paul quotes Psalm 19, saying, you see, as the scripture says, their line has gone out into all the world, and their voice to the ends of the earth. And this is why he argues in Romans 10, that even the Jewish people of his day could not say they had not been told. Because God had indeed sent them, his servants. And the accent of Psalm 19, just as it is in Romans 10, is to link the, the revealed character of God from the cosmos, that outward observable aspect of God. The cosmos can't tell somebody about his character. The cosmos can't explain the, the intricacies of knowing God. But oh, what a dazzling invitation it is to ask. What a dazzling, delightful, inquisitive invitation to come and find, is there something, is there somewhere where I can find out more about this God? And that takes us, would you find it in your Bible, to 7-11. Now think about it like this, that the real flow of this passage from cosmos to scripture to the human heart is why we pray the prayer. And when the human heart is referred to in the Psalms 243 times in the book of Psalms, the word heart is used. It is dealing then with this, with this uh, aspect of why, why would it be some people might read Psalm 19 in their Bible, just their normal Bible reading. They might get to that and they think, oh, that's talking about the stars. And then it changes the subject completely. The law of the Lord is perfect. You know, how they can... Actually, the text connects them in the Hebrew, in the poetic Hebrew way. In that, not only does it give us the, the sevenfold imprint of the name of Yahweh, the living God, breathing into Scripture in these six different descriptions, it also, it also gives us the reminder that the creator of all of those magnificent 
is also the creator and designer of the human heart. So the very God who spangled hundreds of billions of stars and galaxies across the sky in outer space is the God who designed your heart and knows your heart and knows intimately and intricately the finest realities of your heart so that it can be said in that great linkage that, that this sun, 865,000 miles in diameter, 93 million miles from the earth, is referred to by God scientifically, so to speak, as the source of warmth, so that, say that phrase once again with me, nothing is deprived of its warmth. Scientists call the laws of the two most prominent laws of thermodynamics the laws of heat power. Well, how much more would we then need the heat power of the, the, these words um, here? They occur in chapter 119, of course. And then here, in chapter 19, they occur in a, in a different context. Now, we know on 119, and sometimes you're all delighted today by the length of my sermons that we're not studying that chapter. I know you're all really happy about that, 176 verses. But, but, the, but, but the, the, the connection with these with these, um, great, these great descriptions of Scripture are not only powerful for their meaning, but they're powerful in their historical context. If you think about the fact that King David has about five roles in his, in his amazing odyssey that we can read so much about in, in uh, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and, 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 in, uh, the, and in Chronicles, uh, that David was first a shepherd boy, then he becomes a mighty warrior. Then he becomes a sweet psalmist of Israel. He becomes a fugitive. Then he becomes a king. Now in those five roles, the composite picture of David's heart becomes, David's life is that he becomes a, the forerunner, the head of the royal line of God's promise to, to bring a Messiah through that royal line. You saw that at Christmas time. But it also is wrapped up in one phrase in Acts chapter 7, where in one very terse expression, David is called the man after God's own heart. The human writer of Psalm 19 had many reasons to be troubled, to find adversity overwhelming, to be intimidated by opposition, but he was no wilting flower. Sometimes guys think, well, church is really just mainly for women. Bible time is kind of a woman thing. You know, not for guys that have goals and are active in pursuit of their passions and, ah, uh, you know, flowery language in some psalm. What's, what's that for me? Well, as one guy pointed out, you know, David... David could take on any three, somebody said this, I would say five of us in hand-to-hand -hand combat <laughs> and, and defeat us and, and, and have us all down on the mat, right? This guy was no, this guy was a man's man. And both as shepherd boy, as mighty warrior, as sweet psalmist of Israel, as the fugitive who, who, who rallied a band of, of, of men who'd been in distress and discontent and in, de in debt, 
and pretty much despairing of, of any future in their lives and, and rallied them into a team who became David's mighty men as the kingdom was launched. This, this guy is the human writer of these texts. Now, what does it say in your Bible? If would you look at that in your Bible, that verse 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the, the King James Bible uses that phrase, converting. The Very interesting, the word for converting there, 7 of 19, is the word timima. It means to bring back the spirit. It can, it can be conveyed as as creating and reviving wholeness. Think of it as a refreshing. The, the NIV, if you have a new international version Bible today, that's the one I'm reading here. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. That conveys that timima. It's, think of it like this now. When you found yourself in a place where you are just, you're overwhelmed with, with problems, frustrations. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, I, I hit a point uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago where I just thought, man, the, the details of what I need to get my arms around right now are just daunting to me. And I went to the Lord, and I know you do too. But we all find ourselves sometimes looking at that and thinking, you know, how do I get my arms around all of this? And you can get easily drained of your energy and motivation when you're overwhelmed with... Uh, with a, a myriad of, of details that no one can do but you. Am I preaching to the choir? Is anybody still, are you breathing? So, so when that happens, remember this, a very simple thing. It's so simple, and yet we forget it. Getting into the Word of God, just reading the Word of God. Great place to start is the Psalms, obviously. Uh, and every day, a psalm or two. And again, when you come up to some odd psalm, that 88 I told you about, or one of the others. Read the psalm and think, why would God put this here in the Bible? Partly because Almighty God, Yahweh, the disclosure, the disclosure of his eternal identity, loves you so much. He wants you to know he sees you in that path. But the key to verse 7 is refreshing the soul, reviving the soul tells us that when you, when you are in the word of God, your soul will be revitalized. There's something happening in your soul. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, I opened my Bible. It didn't happen to me. Uh, let me tell you something. You, you didn't keep it open long enough. You didn't, you didn't spend enough. You know, remember this. These things don't happen like some quick flash in the pan. These things come in a beautiful, kind of like the poetry of this very psalm. It, it kind of sneaks up. I think it sneaks up on cat's feet. And it, and it comes into your mind and your heart. Now, the second uh, Hebrew term there, again, on, the, on this sheet, it's the statutes. It's actually in a different order on this sheet. It's the statutes, chok, 22 times in Psalm 119. That one, has, has the, the Hebrew word means an inscribing, like the engraving into, into a fine metal. Hmm. So the second part of verse 7, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, and they make... Simple people wise. So I think, first of all, of a way to summarize these, the first benefit of reading God's word is the revitalizing of your soul. The second reason is the inscribing into your heart of things you can count on. And 
the very nature of that statute, that chalk in Hebrew, is the reminder that we're not as wise as we think we are. You hit a wall, and you come back to the Word of God, and you realize there are things written in the Word of God that will, that will make you wiser. They will wise you up. I think of it like parallel to what... Um, Dr. Stephen Covey wrote in that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, when he talked about sharpening the saw. This, this one is sharpening the saw. It's understanding sometimes you need to back away from the whole situation, examine what's going on, and let the, let the timeless truths of God's Word sharpen that saw in you. This happens in, in so many different ways that uh, the psalmist is compiling these six benefits for us so that we can use them. Thirdly, the precepts of the Lord are right. And here, right in the, right in the center of these six, we come back to joy again. Uh, we start out with the law of the Lord revitalizes, the statutes of the Lord are inscribed so that we can be wiser, and then rejoicing the heart, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're rejoicing, they're giving joy to the heart. Didn't God say in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it is the joy of the Lord that is your strength. But what causes us to lose joy? Sometimes it's looking too much within. Sometimes it's being too self-focused. Sometimes it's being so preoccupied with our own feelings and our own impressions that we lose sight of the magnitude of what God has called us to do and to be. And then the fourth benefit is the commands of the Lord, and they're opening the eyes. Verse Seven, verse 8, the second part says, The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Think of the fact that in Ephesians 1, verse 16 to 18, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul prayed for the, all the believers in Ephesus and future believers when he said, I keep praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know the hope of your calling. Now, that very enlightening of eyes is embedded in this ancient reference to the Hebrew text and, and then leads us to a deeper reverence to God. Look at that fifth and sixth one there. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I, I see this as a, an indication of when we learn, when we are in the Word of God, we're learning what the fear of the Lord means. It's not, we, we have a tendency in our culture to downplay the fear of the Lord. People are so quick to say, oh, it's not, it's not fear, it's not terror, it's just, a, it's just kind of a warm reverence. Well, no, actually, you can find many places in the Bible where even some of God's most choice servants were scared to death in the presence of God. Moses was the first one we talked about today, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple, Isaiah fell on his face before Almighty God, and he said, Whoa, it's me! It's like in Hebrew it would be a way of saying, I'm doomed, I'm done! I, it's over for me! The sheer comparison of being in the presence of Yahweh was of such impact it was an earthquake in Isaiah's soul. Woe is me, for I 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, again, the very track of this psalm, to look at those three sinful categories that we see in the text. And then the decrees of the Lord. I, I think of this last one here, to learn to fear the Lord. Yes, it's not a, to clarify, it's not, a, it's not an overwhelming fright, of course. It is a true deep reverence, but the genuine fact of fear is a positive value in Scripture that we often miss. If I'm genuinely fearing God, and the Word of God is growing in my heart, I am discovering the magnitude of who He is. Our biggest problem is we, we seek to domesticate God. As J.B. Phillips wrote in a classic, uh, a classic Christian book in about 1961, I think it was, Your God is Too Small. It's still true. The characteristic of the modern Christian is we've domesticated God. We want Him to be our, we want, to be our, we want Him to bless our family and our little house and our bank account and and we want to kind of show up at church every once in a while and, and, and tip God. But we're not, we're, not, we're not moving in the fear of God daily. And, and Psalms will do it for you. It'll do it. It'll, you might say, Pastor Joe, I think I'm a little deficient in the fear of God. Well, all right, join the club and dive into the Psalms. And I assure you that that awesome fear of God will grow. And then the decrees of the Lord, I think of this last one, I think it kind of wraps everything up in verse 9 by saying the decrees of the Lord are firm and they're altogether righteous. To me, it's like saying when you get into the Bible comprehensively, it's an A to Z, it's an A to Z compendium of truth you need for your soul. Now here's what's amazing though. When we think of all of that, as David begins to talk about it, and then David says, when I re reflect on all this, I think of two illustrations of these, the impact of this on my life. One is gold, and the second is honey. The gold deals with the inestimable value. David says, when I think of all of this, in verse 11, more to be desired are these statutes, precepts, commandments, fear of God, more to be desired, even the gold, yes, than fine gold. Now, just for fun, I, I just grabbed the, the spot price of gold a week ago to put it on the screen to say, whatever gold is now, I know what it is now, it's a week old, but uh, whatever gold was selling for this last week, I can assure you the Word of God is infinitely, infinitely more value, valuable. And David was saying that. Now, Another amazing aspect of this as he thinks about the sweetness of the Word of God is that David, in all of those aspects we saw of his life, David only had the Torah, the book of Job, some of the as yet, as yet uncollated psalms, some of the psalms, because he was writing the psalms. And he didn't even have the Proverbs because his son Solomon compiled wrote some of them, and compiled the Proverbs. So, so basically, to say all that we've just said, in retrospect to the very minimal substance of all of God's Word that David had, and now what would David have done with Isaiah chapter 40? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings. David didn't have that. What would David have done with Jeremiah 33? Call unto me and I will answer you. What would David have done with the Gospels? What would David have done with John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. David, what is so awesome about this is 
this compendium of experiencing the power of God's word that is more valuable than gold and sweeter, the text says, than the very drippings of the honeycomb. The Hebrew word pictures what I tried to picture here. Uh, Not just honey, a little bit of honey, but honey just dripping down. The sweetness of Almighty God and His revelation to our soul. And so it brings us to this capacity then to take the cautions of verse 12 and 13 to heart and realize that these three categories of sin help us understand all of us are subject to these errors, all of us are, are subject to these, category, to these hidden faults and these willful sins. Errors, kind of, I think of as kind of as a general, a general um, over, overarching uh, of all the things that we don't, we are just prone to error. And, and some of those are not matters of sin, but the text, the Hebrew word, implies a moral element to it. So we have to say these errors are having to do with the erroneous way we approach life and people and God. And those are ways that are part of our, our makeup. We're, we're kind of wired that way. So I would think of the errors there as the way you're wired that's not serving your best, <laughs> to put it mildly. Then there's those hidden faults. Those are those things that are, that are deeply embedded, hidden even from us. What is notable here, if you just look in your Bible very quickly, one more time back to verse 6, is that the conclusion of that link verse is that nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. And the very same Hebrew word hidden in verse 6 is then repeated there in verse uh, 11, or is it 12? Uh, Hidden, yeah, verse 12, the same Hebrew word, hidden. So there's a link in the poetic expression of this psalm. The same way that the sun comprehensively covers all of the earth and and all life depends on the sun, in the same way, the word of God comes to the heart and nothing is hidden from the power. And that's why, listen friends, that's why we need his gold and his honeycomb. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that in our hearts today, we could walk in a, in a renewed awakening and awareness that often the solutions we seek are far closer to our fingertips than we may have imagined uh, because you have, just as you did in the life of David, and, and, and with a much more limited, a far more limited um, corpus of, of the writings of God's eternal word, how astounded David would have been to read the book of Ephesians. How moved David would have been to read uh, Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. And everything here in Psalm 19 anticipates all of those great redemptive truths. So, Lord, we say together as the psalm concludes, my rock and my redeemer, knowing that you're, as, you're, as our rock we run to you and find our refuge, as our redeemer we know you've done all that is necessary. Yahweh, almighty God, seven references to your holy name embedding in us the understanding that the written word of God brings us to the very vestibule of the glory of your transformational redemption. Hallelujah. Together as, uh, as Josiah is beginning to play just very quietly, because I, I think it's one of these things, I, I thought of it as kind of saturating or soaking in the psalm, and so just very quietly with this uh, 
just kind of repeating these phrases, let's, let, let's pray the prayer once again. Let the words of my mouth, let's say that together, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.